I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. It has often been said that the blackest surname in America, ironically, is Washington. I say ironic because George Washington, as we know, was a slaveholder, and yet many emancipated blacks opted to assume the surname Washington. It also happens there are numerous black Jeffersons and Lincolns, and these people bear no relation to these former presidents of the United States by and large, uh, but their names apparently were chosen because these names seem to have some kind of cachet for reasons either obvious or not so obvious because, as we all know, Jefferson, too, was a slaveholder. Abraham Lincoln, not so much. Well, the adoption of surnames can be a fun study when you begin to wonder what people were thinking and why they decided on this or that name as a kind of marker for life. But of all the names adopted by black Americans, here is one you may never have encountered before, Lafayette. There was a certain James Lafayette who worked at great peril and with great courage in behalf of the colonists who were were rebelling against England. And he did this as an enslaved person. He actually did know the famous Marquis de Lafayette. And there's a story here worth telling and worth hearing, and we have found just the person to do it. We have with us as our guest now Stephen Seals on Constant Wonder. Seals serves as Community Outreach Liaison and Program Development Manager at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. His professional career has deep roots in theater. He's currently a James Lafayette interpreter. But for many years, he traveled the country performing and directing. He worked with inner-city youth groups. His background is in theater education, writing, direction, production, management, all the things that come with the stage. And he is particularly connected with African-American and religion interpretation for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He's on the line with us. Stephen Seals, welcome. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So, James Lafayette, this is not a household name, and I'm wondering when you first learned about him. Funny enough, I didn't learn about James Lafayette until probably my third or fourth year working at at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, We were doing this special interpretation weekend uh, called Prelude to Victory about the Battle of Yorktown. And uh, one of my colleagues had been asked to write a a piece for it. And he uh, wrote a piece called, um, well, it was uh, The Reluctant Spy was, was basically what it what it was about. And it was about James Lafayette. And I had, I had never heard of him and that it just, it opened my world. And, you know, years later I'm asked to portray him. Um, but I did not know about him until about eight or nine years ago. Yeah. So reluctant spy, that's very intriguing right there. Is spy the very best description? If you're going to pick one description of James Lafayette, does spy work for you? It's probably what he's most well-known for, but he spied for less than a year. Now, mind you, within that less than a year's time, um, much research says that uh, the news that Cornwallis was heading to Yorktown so that the Battle of Yorktown could happen when Washington arrived in Virginia, well, that's one of the pieces of information that he was able to get to the Marquis de Lafayette that the Marquis then shared with, with George Washington. So in that respect, it's what he's most well-known for, but he... He lived um, for nearly, for over 80 years. And so there's a a life before that spying, then he spied for a year. Then after that, he wasn't freed yet. There was another six years before he he was even freed. And then he lived as a a freedman from, you know, the 1780s all the way until he dies in 1830. So this this is one of those stories that is just improbable because... Uh, the, the the position in society, obviously, of enslaved persons is such that you don't right. think of them as be, being given positions of of trust and uh, importance. Like like now, you go out and you gather reconnaissance, and and we trust you to do that. This just seems so improbable. Very much so, and I don't think it would have happened under any other general other than the the Marquis de Lafayette. He he just had this view of. Um, of people. There actually is a quote of him, you know, saying, no matter what color you are, you are a person. Um, and he was an early, you know, though they weren't using the term yet in the 18th century, abolitionist. And he was was adamant 
on on that. And I think that probably helped when he met James to look at James as who he was as a person and not what the law considered him, which was property. Well, let's go back to the very beginning to the extent that we can even put it together. How do you piece together the story of a, a young child born in these circumstances? We at least know who his owner was and what kind of a, a situation he was born into and and where he was. You're right. It becomes really difficult because, you know, for enslaved individuals, record keeping was not something that was considered important to those who were making records at the time. So a lot of what you have to look at is uh, what his his owner, his eventual owner, William Armistead, uh, what was he doing during youth? What was going on in, in his life? As well as you can find a couple of little things in, um, in different records. Uh, one, for instance, has um, William Armistead heading to be a part of the public stores in Virginia in 1777. And what's in those documents is a mention that he is afforded to bring one enslaved person with him. And many researchers, myself included, think that uh, that would have probably included his manservant, which was James. So you can kind of think James was probably there, and that makes complete sense to how he ended up connecting with the Marquis de Lafayette. So William Armistead is the uh, direct uh, person that James is going to be working under as a as a manservant, you say, and and yeah. and, and what is Armistead up to? Well, uh, at this point, he is so he's been appointed not the head of the public stores, which were the the public warehouses um, in Virginia. A lot of the states or the colonies probably had them at the time, uh, but it's where a lot of the weapons were kept, where things were delivered. And he was at that point kind of a deputy, but eventually he becomes the head of those public stores. So what would be the case then would William Armistead would have been responsible for uh, supplying much of the much of the army within Virginia, which meant that James, as his manservant, probably would have been doing a lot of the grunt work, would have been doing a lot of the the correspondence and delivery, and that's probably how James got to got to be in the circles that he was in to eventually meet the the Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah, you know, a, a supply facility like this is going to be a major crossroads, and so it does make sense that James is going to be seeing people coming and going, and very important people too. Very much so, and we have some some interesting correspondence with the with the public stores as well. Uh, funny enough, uh, William Armstead was having some issues with some of the the shipments happening as. You know, the war was happening. There were quite a few things that the troops did not have. And uh, there's a letter from the Marquis de Lafayette to the public stores that says something along the lines of that um, the deliveries from the public stores have been handled so poorly that my men have been reduced to drinking bad whiskey. Yeah. Um, So you can see that there's kind of, at this point, it's, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette in Virginia He's trying to get supplies for his men. It's not going very well. So then you have to start to think about, well, looking at the 18th century, how then would he have connected with um, with James, who at the time would not have been known as James Armistead, but he would have just been known as James from what we can find in the records. But how would he have met James? How would James have ended up becoming a spy for the Marquis de Lafayette? And you, you kind of have to look at the ways in which other people became spies or the other pieces of information that we know about spies because James was probably a very good spy because we know very little (laughs) about what he actually did at the time, which is, which is what a good spy does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you're really left up to a lot of imagination to try to just look at the circumstances and, uh, are there documents anywhere though that finger him and say, this was his function. He was in fact conducting espionage on behalf of the Continental Army? So there are three documents that do that. There are two letters from the Marquis de Lafayette to George Washington where he talks about, um, and he keeps naming the person because, you know, it's spycraft, so you have to be very careful. But he says, my honest friend has gained this information. For instance, the the letter about uh, Yorktown uh, for General Washington 
the Marquis de Lafayette sends the letter and he's basically saying, my honest friend who is serving Lord Cornwallis has found me this information. And, you know, this is what's happening. He's going to the town of, of York. So there are two different letters that have that information on it. But then you go to um, after the war where uh, the Marquis de Lafayette goes back to France in 1781. Uh, not long after Yorktown. Uh, James is not given his freedom by the um, House of Delegates in Virginia because they don't consider him a soldier, and they say that he volunteered. So he gets sent back to slavery, and in 1784, the Marquis de Lafayette returns to America, and he finds that James is still enslaved, and he writes a letter in his own hand, and it survives to this day, so you can actually Google search it and find it. But it is the Marquis de Lafayette's letter um, speak, telling the assembly what James has done for him, and it specifically says that he delivered um, correspondence to the enemy lines that that helped in the winning of the war. So that's, that is the most direct document that we have from the hands of the Marquis de Lafayette signed in his own hand of what James did for him. Well, that's the clincher right there. I mean, that's not just in the hand of the Marquis de Lafayette, but it's an endorsement. It sounds like it's a ringing endorsement of this person made a huge contribution, and you you guys better understand this. Yes. Yes. And, and the Marquis de Lafayette knew exactly what he was doing at that point in time. And probably for the next 40 years, the Marquis de Lafayette was the second most loved man in all of the United States, number one, probably being George Washington. But when the Marquis de Lafayette, he didn't return back to America for another 40 years until 1824. But when he does, it is a year and a half of parties. Every city he goes to for that <laughs> year and a half, they throw him a party, they they build him a carriage, they, you know, give him as much as he can drink. He's in his 60s, but they're still partying him like he's still in his 20s. And it's just amazing to to look at that information of how loved he was and the information that you find of him actually seeing James again in 1824 and recognizing who he is and showing affection to James. We actually have a newspaper article um, from Richmond that talks about uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in 1824, stopping his carriage, getting out and embracing this black man in the middle of the streets of Richmond um, because they had served together and were still considered each other to be great friends. And it's amazing to see that original newspaper article. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, if you would, a little bit of something about uh, the M.O. that I understand that that James was able to leverage his status as an enslaved person in, in uh, conducting his espionage. Yes. So the, the word that I would probably use to describe it would be the hubris of the British. The British really did think that because at one point they were the only side that was offering freedom uh, to enslaved individuals that, that fought for them. The Americans didn't do that until years into the war. But what the British thought was because they had already made this offer to the blacks of North British North America that they would come and serve them and that they would have nothing to worry about at all. They weren't particularly concerned that these individuals might not, you know, might see things in a, in a different manner. Uh, the more I think about it, when you when you look at it, you know, until 1776, Americans considered themselves Britons. They, they were British, and they were very proud of being British. So I would think as an enslaved person looking at this, okay, they don't want to be British anymore, but they still have the same people who used to consider themselves Britons as being over me. I don't think they're really much different, and the British aren't really much different. So I can definitely see someone going, okay, what's going to be best for myself and my and my family and and running off to the british means that i might find my freedom but i'm not going to have my family with me and i don't i don't know about you but freedom without my family i don't i don't know that that's that i could find happiness in that and james i have no doubt knew that by serving the marquis de lafayette from the ways that virginia law works that that would probably be what they considered a quote-unquote meritorious service, and he could possibly gain his freedom through that. 
So it, it makes a lot of sense as to why uh, James would decide to serve the Marquis de Lafayette. But the British probably were not thinking that blacks at that point were thinking that deeply about it, but they were. Yeah, yeah. So is it possible, is it conceivable that British people with uh, some pretty important intelligence might have just been not very tight-lipped because they figure, (laughs) well, this isn't a white person. I can say what I want because it's not going to go anywhere anyway. Do you know what I mean? Is is that that a— Oh, yes. Yes. We, um, at work, um, at Colonial Williamsburg, we, or a lot of us will say, and I'll actually interpret this even when I'm in character, but the the enslaved of Williamsburg, in a lot of ways, even at the time, were called the invisible people. Because in Williamsburg, in uh, 1776, 52% of the population was black. So that means that every other face that you saw was was a black person, and probably enslaved. But despite the fact that they were 52% of the population, they, they were, well, I mean, they were everywhere. We were everywhere, which meant that you couldn't have a conversation without one of us hearing it. And we interpret the fact that, you know, people share information. Blacks are going to share information with other blacks about what they've heard in these rooms where they're serving people and people are still having to have these conversations because they're having these important conversations, but they still want to be served, which means you're going to have to have someone in there pouring their drinks, getting their food, delivering their correspondence, and they're going to act like those people are insignificant because to them, they're insignificant. They're getting them what they need. But those individuals are hearing every single thing that's said and I cannot believe that that someone would be able to hear all of this information and not use it or share it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk with you more about your interpretation. Uh, You are a James Lafayette interpreter, and I I want to know what that work entails and, and, and how you go about that. We're going to talk about that after a short break here on our show. We are visiting with Stephen Seals. He is Community Outreach Liaison and Program Development Manager at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and a James Lafayette interpreter. We're going to learn about that interpretation after a break here on Constant Wonder. Thanks for joining with me for Constant Wonder. It's our great pleasure to have with us Stephen Seals. He is an interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg. What does that mean? Well, we're going to ask him. I want to tell you what his formal role is. He's Community Outreach Liaison and Program Development Manager there at Williamsburg Foundation. And he also is a James Lafayette interpreter. Stephen Seals, you know, it's so hard to piece together the history of a person like this. And I'm just wondering, do you know anything about his later life, his later years, his waning years? And does he secure freedom because Lafayette spoke up for him? So we actually have um, a lot more information about James than than I was expecting um, from when he gained his freedom. Uh, the credit has to be given, though, where it's due. Uh, the museum at Yorktown did a lot of research to help gain this information, as well as uh, here in, uh, in Virginia, the New Kent Historical Society. Uh, he spent most of his uh, life in uh, New Kent County, which is in between Williamsburg and the capital of Virginia, Richmond. And they have also gotten a lot of information and were able to to find information in other places, because when Richmond burned during the Civil War, a lot of records were destroyed. But uh, what you can find is you find uh, tax records. And what those tax records show us is that at least by 1816, he had 40 acres of land um, that he had most likely freed his family members, but he was buying family members in order to eventually free them, though the laws of Virginia made that very tricky. Um, But it looks like he was doing that. We have his um, 1818 petition for a veteran's pension, which is how we know his age, because he says in that document that he is three score and ten. So we we know that he was 70 years old in 1818 by his own words. That's also the document where we have his signature because he actually signed that document. So I've been practicing his signature for years. Um, (laughs) But you have 
that. You have the one portrait that we know for sure is uh, James Lafayette. That portrait, the original, is now in the Ballantyne Museum here in, in Richmond. And if you Google search, you'll, you'll see it immediately. But we have that portrait. We have the interviews from the newspapers. There are at least two of those from 1824. He was also interviewed by an, an author um, whose last name I think was Heath. But he, uh, after the interview, Heath wrote a book called Edge Hill or the Story of the Fitzroyals. It's a historical fiction novel about the Revolutionary War. And one of his uh, side heroes in that is an enslaved man by the name of James. So most likely that was James from James Lafayette's interview. So there are a number of different pieces that we have that help us to to put together as much of James's life once he became free. We also have the papers from the assembly that freed him in 1787. So yeah, there are a number of different documents that, that have helped us kind of piece things together. And what about potential descendants or family stories in the oral history lingering that's to talk about him? Oh yes, lots of oral history. His uh, descendants are still alive today. Uh, actually, a, a good number of them live in Saskatchewan, Canada. And um, interestingly enough, the um, the individual who's the historian of the family, Carol, actually just talked with her a couple of days ago because um, I, I try to stay connected with the family because I, I need to make sure that I am doing right by his descendants in the way in which I'm telling my story. Uh, if they have an issue or they see something that I'm doing that, that doesn't help to truly tell the story, of of James, then I, I've asked them to, to let me know. So they've been able to share stories with me. They've also been trying to gain um, information as well. It, it's an interesting sort of, of tightrope walk because for, for Blacks especially, it's really hard for us to, to do our ancestry. And a lot of times you have the stories that are passed down, but you don't have the the records, maybe you have DNA evidence nowadays, but you don't have those written records of who begot who, of who begot who, and who and who. So that's what they're trying to really do right now is completely connect that family line. Because when you look at them and you look at the portrait of James Lafayette that's around, they still look just like him. But the records are what they're really trying to find to really sure. make that connection for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk then. Let's put you in costume, shall we? What What is sure. your typical day like there? Uh, what kind of a crowd do you play to? And, and how much of this is is on a, on a stage? Or what, uh, Just describe what this interpretation is all about. Well, I mean, we're in a whole new world right now, so I should probably talk about pre-COVID because <laughs> okay. that's going to give you a much better idea of of kind of what the expectation is for the the way in which um, my interpretation works during the day. Uh, my interpretations can take place um, on a stage. They can take place, you know, Williamsburg has hundreds of acres. Um, it's a mile wide and a half a mile. It's a mile long and a half a mile wide. So there are a lot of places where you can uh, meet with guests and talk to them, but we also have some spaces, uh, some indoors, but mostly outdoors, where you can you know, go onto a stage in one of the historic buildings and be able to, to interpret with, with an audience. And you know, I've done performances for as few as 10 people, and I've done performances for as many as seven or 800, because that's how many you can fit into some of our performance spaces. And uh, usually, um, I will I will be in character. I'll come out in character. I'm all in costume. I'll do a presentation for about twenty or thirty minutes, and then I will open it up to questions. And I will stay in character, so people can then talk to me as James, and they can ask me about my life. They can ask me about what I think about this or about that, and I will, as James, um, answer those questions. There have been a couple of times where I have broken character and I will go, I'll answer these questions to Stephen. But for the most part, it's it's going from performance to performance um, in character, telling a bit of James's story in order to hopefully get them curious to learn more about not only James's life, but the life of free and enslaved blacks in the 18th century and early 19th century. What were we dealing with? What were 
what was in our minds, what was most important to us. And uh, that's usually how I will start my presentation is kind of finding that, that hook, that part of his story, because so many parts of his story are unbelievably interesting, that you can talk about the laws, you can talk about family, uh, you can talk about duty, you can talk about freedom. It's all there in his story. So I just have to put it out there, and then the guests will ask amazing questions. Do you feel like this person, this historical figure, James Lafayette, remains too abstract for you? Or do you feel like there's really a person there that you can identify with, that you can relate to in some fashion, and, and he's, has he become more real for you? He has definitely become more real for me. I can completely relate to him. When I first uh, took on the role, there were choices that he had made in his life that I just didn't understand. And the more that I did the research and the more that I looked especially at slave laws of the 18th century, it became really obvious as to why he made all the choices that he did. And the moment that that clicked for me, his, his humanity came out even more than it already had been. My job in the end is to bring humanity to the people of the 18th century. It just so happens that I'm black, which means I'm trying to bring humanity to those black individuals who, at least under Virginia law, were not allowed to be citizens at the time, but were living um, in and around Williamsburg and, and Virginia. And James has truly become, uh, he is a person, and I treat him as a person, and I interpret him as a person, and I try to give him a personality, and his personality is, is a bit different than mine. I'm, I'm a pretty shy person, but uh, James is not. James has no problems talking to people. He has no problems saying what he, what he feels or what he thinks, also understanding the society that he's in and the things that he can't say, but he's probably better at saying things than Stephen is. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he has become kind of his own person. And, of course, you, you play someone long enough, he, uh, he he does become a part of you. And I, I feel like he's a part of me. But there are so many parts of him that are not me that I love portraying. It, it's part of what I love about being an actor. Now, Stephen, I know that you spent a lot of your career working with youth in theater programs. And I'm just wondering if that all comes together for you ever at a place like Williamsburg, where in character as Lafayette – you're portraying this man specifically for, well, whoever's in the crowd, but you got to be spying a few young'uns there. And I'm just wondering how they react to you and, and how you interact with them. Oh, with, without a doubt. And it's interesting that actually youth will know who I am before their parents do. Um, there are at least four states right now in the United States that have James Lafayette um, as a part of their learning standards. So there actually are youth that come here to Colonial Williamsburg specifically looking for James. And they will tell their parents information about me before I even say anything at all, which is wonderful. But what really connects to me is looking back to when I was a kid, because I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, and I remember going to museums or hearing about history and, and not seeing any history that, that looked like me. I, I grew up in West Virginia, so I was really a minority. And, you know, your history is your identity. So if you don't see yourself reflected in the history that's being told about your home, then you don't feel like you belong in that home. You don't feel like you're a part of that. And I felt that way through most of my, my childhood. So for me, it's always been about making young people feel like they belong. And especially young people of color, I want them to see themselves in their history. I, I often say to people because they, they're like, you know, they want to see like slavery being all like, like, uh, disgusting and, and visceral, and, which it is. But that's not the part of it that I want to remember. What I want to remember and what I want youth to take away from these performances is that our, our history is, is again, our, our identity. And the history of slavery is not a history of, of destruction and failure and shame, as we've been taught. It is a story of perseverance. It is a story of hope. It is a story of survival because I'm able to sit here today 
having this interview with you because of my ancestors who came before me, who survived a very horrible time in, in American history. And so I'm able to be here and I'm able to help others that look like me, hopefully not go through the same thing that I did of, of not thinking that there was a place in this country or a place in this history for me. So that's the importance whenever I see a, a, a child and especially a child of color coming to see these interpretations. I, I want them to know that they should never bow their heads about this history of their people. It is a story of hope. And so sometimes you probably actually play directly to that black child or to that youth of any uh, background. You play to the youth directly sometimes. You do. You do. And it's it's very important. It's, you know, I, I start off as an actor, but when they talk about um, interpretation, um, there's a man who basically wrote what we call the Holy Bible of interpretation, uh, Freeman Tilden. And one of the things that he says that interpretation is, especially when you're dealing with youth, is that youth interpretation is not a dumbing down of the regular interpretation. They need a completely different type of interpretation than an adult would. So when I'm dealing with a child, I actually have to think about what level is that child on and what on on what level can I help them to understand what it is that I'm that I'm saying or what it is that I'm wanting them to feel or or know? You you have to think about that very hard. So I I will tend to really think about that when I see youth in the audience. A lot of eye contact. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> I want to conclude with kind of where I began talking about surnames. Do we know when he adopted that surname Lafayette? Was it before or after the Marquis came back in 1824 and gave him that embrace? Do we know? Well, we know it's definitely before then, because he's already signing in 1818. Well, here's, here's the interesting thing about his signature. And uh, his signature actually spells out James Fayette. So it's interesting that when he signs documents, he, he doesn't even use the law. But as far as when you hear him being talked about in different documents, after 1787, he is James Lafayette. So and we can't really find the exact moment, because before then, as he's being freed, he's just called James, or James owned by the Armisteads, or James of the Armisteads. And at some point, most likely, it would have happened when he became free, because at that point, you, you were going to need a last name to be able to, to be better identified and to give a legacy to your family. So most likely, 1787 is, is when he's doing it but we don't 100% know for sure. Yeah. Such a remarkable story and such a wonderful opportunity you have to represent him as an actor and a pleasure to have you on our show. Stephen Seals, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stephen Seals is a James Lafayette interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg. It took years for James Armistead Lafayette's service to the country to be recognized leading to his freedom from slavery. That's a battle that was fought over and over in the decades that followed with varying degrees of success. When we return to our show in just a bit, we're going to hear about a courageous freed black woman who was kidnapped back into slavery, but after the Civil War won a lawsuit against her kidnapper. A fascinating tale. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Henrietta Wood legally won her freedom in Ohio in 1848. Five years later, she was kidnapped and re-enslaved. Much later, after the Civil War, she sued the man who kidnapped her and won $2,500. That was the largest sum ever granted by a U.S. court in restitution for slavery. Our next guest here on the show uncovered two interviews from an Ohio newspaper in 1879, interviews with Henrietta herself. The man who found and told Henrietta's story is Caleb McDaniel. He's a professor of history at Rice University and author of Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America. I asked him why this story was nearly lost to history. 
while the victory that she won in her lawsuit was widely reported in 1878, her story was not widely circulated, although a version of the story told by the man that she sued uh, was widely reprinted. So I think that that speaks to the disparities in the ability of different Americans in the past to, to have a platform to tell their stories. But her determination to make sure that her story was heard is certainly the reason I was able to find enough to write a book. And if her story has been received over the years one way, are you hoping your book's going to be received another way? I do hope it will make her story uh, more visible. Um, you know, after she gave those interviews for decades, it, it was more or less forgotten, and even historians were not aware of uh, the the full story. You know, it was actually collected by many enthusiasts of Lafcadio Hearn's writings that that particular interview. But all of them were more interested in Hearn himself and his life, and so there wasn't any effort to to investigate her story. So I am hoping that uh, readers who uh, encounter her story for the first time will uh, will gain some new insight onto the history of slavery and freedom and Reconstruction in uh, reading the book. So let's become familiar now with some of the main milestones of her life. Uh, this this could go on with, with considerable detail, but just hit, hit uh, some of the main points where she was born uh, in slavery how she was freed, why she was freed, what was this manumission about, how, did, how was she betrayed, uh, put back into slavery? Uh, walk us through that. She was born enslaved in northern Kentucky around 1818 or 1820, and as a teenager around the age of 14, she was sold to a merchant in Louisville and separated from her family. After that, she was sold to another merchant who moved to New Orleans, where she lived for about six or seven years, but then she returned to Kentucky, and the woman who enslaved her at that time moved to Cincinnati, where the laws at the time required that people of color brought into the state be registered as free. So for about five years, from 1848 to 1853, Wood was living as a free woman there and worked in various boarding houses in the city before she was uh, lured back across the river and kidnapped and re-enslaved. Who ratted her out, if you will? Who, who turned her over to the kidnappers? Well, there was some dispute in the family that owned her uh, in 1848 about whether she should have been taken to Cincinnati or not. So uh, Jane Sirode was the woman who assisted her in obtaining those freedom papers, but Sirode's children believed uh, would to be part of their inheritance. They remained on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River, and they persuaded a deputy sheriff named Zebulon Ward to um, pay them some money for the right to sell her if he could capture her and re-enslave her. And so that was what set the wheels in motion to bring her back across the river and into her long ordeal. Do you have any idea how common it was for people to have actual documentation saying that they are no longer uh, slaves, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet for that documentation to be of basically no effect? Well, it was, it was much more common uh, than I think many people realize. We, we know stories about the Underground Railroad and the movement of people escaping across the river into the north, but there's another story of free people of color who were living in close proximity to slave states, uh, and they were always in danger of uh, re-enslavement. There are some stories that I think are well known to the general public. One is Solomon Northup's story, who was the subject of the movie Twelve Years a Slave in uh, 2013, and he told a, uh, or he wrote a memoir, excuse me, about his experience of kidnapping and enslavement that was published in 1853, the same year that Wood uh, and her ordeal began. But Northup in that book uh, spoke about hundreds of people that he knew were uh, laboring on plantations in Louisiana and the Deep South who had stories similar to his and to hers, if he had known it. Uh, people who did have claims to freedom, but uh, those claims weren't recognized by Southern courts uh, once they were brought into slave states. I guess behind my question is the idea that if I were in that situation, I would 
cherish and treasure and protect and think those documents mm-hmm. are very, mm-hmm. very important. Did mm-hmm. If Henrietta Wood had papers, mm-hmm. do we know what happened to those papers? Well, we, we do, and I don't want to give too much of the, the storyline away, um, but suffice it to say that the two copies that existed, uh, she was not able to present them in court in Kentucky after she was kidnapped. So I think, um, on the one hand, those papers were, you know, treasured sources of freedom for many people, but freedom that depended on a paper uh, was also freedom that was paper-thin in a way and was, you know, subject to um, destruction and loss and, um, you know, in a case like hers, did not prevent her from being re-enslaved. I don't even, I can't even imagine the idea of five years of freedom. And then she goes to Kentucky. The Zebulon Ward was the deputy sheriff. He's involved. He seems to have had a fair amount of braggadocio because he, he had a story to tell and he was pushing the law. What was, what was Ward's side of this? Uh, what was he saying about the whole situation? Well, part of Ward's account was uh, to claim that Wood had been taken into uh, Ohio and freed without the permission of Sirode's family. And so he cast her as um, a fugitive slave. So I've done the research to demonstrate that that story was, was not true. And legally, she did have a claim to freedom on, on the basis of having those papers and living in Cincinnati for five years. But it spotlights um, the ways that the laws at the time made it easy for would-be kidnappers to uh, make stories like that that would endanger free people of color. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, for example, um, passed just a few years before Wood's kidnapping, uh, significantly lowered the burden of proof that enslavers uh, had to meet in order to demonstrate that somebody was, uh, as they claimed, a fugitive slave. And abolitionists and people of color themselves at the time pointed out the way that that law actually endangered people with legitimate claims to freedom um, because of uh, the, the um, ways that it stacked the deck in favor of, of men like Ward. Now, how, I, I don't know that anybody will ever know the total numbers, ever. Mm-hmm. But do we have any sense for how many uh, 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 former slaves were taken back into slavery under this Fugitive Slave Act? Or law, or whatever it was. It's very, very difficult to to estimate that, partly because, you know, when we read about cases in newspapers, it's difficult to know, you know, whose claim to to recognize, the claim of the person saying that this was a fugitive slave, or the claim of the person saying that they were a free person. Um, So it's difficult, you know, to to make a full accounting. Um, But... I think that most historians would agree it was a significant number. Um, I I know there's a forthcoming book by historian Richard Bell at the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, The title of it is Stolen, and he estimates that the number may have um, been roughly equivalent to the number of escapes on the Underground Railroad. So the reason I'm curious about this is because Henrietta Wood has an exceptional story inasmuch as she received some restitution from the courts long after the Civil War. Uh, And if if she's the exception in receiving restitution, I'm just trying to compare that to how many people would have been in the similar situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I think her, her ordeal would have been much more common than the outcome of her suit. And in fact, much of the commentary about her restitution suit um, noted this. The New York Times published an article in 1878 in, in which it commented that, uh, you know, this was uh, this was a story that they had heard repeated many times in, or could be found repeated many times in the newspaper archives of the antebellum United States. And so people at the time, I think, were amazed by the outcome and, and compelled by the story partly because those who had lived through the antebellum period knew that this was not um, an unusual circumstance. But what was unusual was for one of those people to be able to return to the scene of the crime, as it were, and locate the the perpetrator and then hold that person to account in, in court. Now, 
with notorious people, these slave catchers and the complicity of, say, the Sirod uh, descendants, the members of the family where they had once owned her down in New Orleans, but now uh, they're up somewhere in Ohio, they kind of get into cahoots with Sebulon Ward. They make arrangements. Who was Rebecca Boyd in this story? Rebecca Boyd was the woman who was in uh, Wood's employer at the time of her kidnapping in Cincinnati, although Wood comments that uh, she was the worst employer that she had had since she gained her freedom in 1848. She promised to pay Wood, but uh, never actually came through with that promise. Uh, But she had been working for Boyd for about three months and waiting for pay, and Boyd was uh, brought into cahoots with the kidnapping gang to uh, to offer to to take Wood on a carriage ride. Uh, that carriage then crossed the Ohio River, and Boyd uh, turned her over to Ward and his men. We've got to get the chapter of the story. It's multiple chapters, actually, because I want to talk about the period from 1853. I think that's when she's first kidnapped. I think 1855 is when uh, she loses a chance to, uh, to get out of that situation. And then she's taken down, to, I guess, to Mississippi and then to Texas. Tell us about her life in Mississippi and Texas with her second go-around as a slave. Mm-hmm. Well, there, too, she had what was a very common experience for um, enslaved people sold down the river. The interstate slave trade moved um, around one million people between 1820 and 1860 from the Upper South to the Lower South. And wood was sold into one of the largest slave markets of that time, the Forks of the Road market in Natchez, Mississippi, where she was purchased by one of the largest slaveholders um, and wealthiest cotton planters in the area, a man named Gerard Brandon. Uh, And so she worked in the cotton fields for the first time in the late 1850s on Brandon's plantation near Natchez. But in the summer of 1863, as Union troops were approaching the Natchez district, Brandon and many others in that area realized that uh, if U.S. troops arrived, they would lose their their control over um, the enslaved people that they owned. So he forced uh, about 300 people to march uh, 400 miles to Robertson County, Texas, where she remained until about a year after the Civil War ended. And her work there? There, uh, Brandon was renting a plantation and producing cotton. Uh, She speaks about the toll that the march took on her health, so at least for a period of time she was on crutches and probably doing uh, household work for Brandon in his sort of rented camp there in Texas. Um, But she returned with him to Natchez in 1866, And uh, there's a contract showing that she did laundry and other domestic work for the Brandons for about three years before she saved up $25 to return up the river to Cincinnati. And while she's there, I also understand she was beaten. She was flogged. She was. And the Cotton uh, South was a brutal uh, place. And uh, she, you know, experienced that in her second enslavement. Um, it was it was in addition to the brutality of a very new environment for her. She had been enslaved in urban settings um, for most of her earlier life, and so this was a new experience um, and a brutal experience in more ways than one. Now let's go to court with Henrietta Wood. What were the main arguments for and against? I, I'm just curious to know how this would have landed on the ears of juries, uh, the, the the jury. Well, her case, um, you know, the, she did have, because of the abduction, uh, a sort of claim that gave her legal standing before the court. But in her petition, uh, she and her lawyers made clear that they thought of this case as about the evils of slavery itself. She wasn't just suing for the abduction uh, in 1853 by Ward, but she was also holding him accountable for all of the wages she had lost and all the suffering she had endured at the hands of Gerard Brandon um, after Ward sold her down the river. And so um, it was clear that, you know, this was a case that raised the the question of restitution for slavery writ large. Um, At the same time, and I think you mentioned in your introduction, uh, it's difficult to know 
whether the jurors and the judge recognized uh, that that argument or instead confined themselves to um, to offering restitution for the abduction that started her long ordeal. So it sounds like if they shine the light on the kidnapping, if they say, well, you were abducted and, we're, and you're going to get some money from Zebulon Ward and he's going to pay up on this, that is a way to maybe prevent her case be, from becoming a, a precedent that other people would look to in this whole matter of reparations? It was clear that that was on the mind, uh, at the very least, of the first judge who heard the case. Um, he went out of his way to instruct the jury not to offer a reward excessive damages, um, and in fact, he he excused Ward on the grounds that, uh, you know, uh, this had been legal at the time, and, and as much as anyone, everyone regretted slavery, he claimed that um, that their own moral judgments of the institution should not enter into their uh, they're thinking about the case. So it's clear that, that he and uh, and many of the people who commented on the case were concerned that it would generate a precedent. I wonder if the jury was sitting there saying, she's asked for a lot of money and we'll give her some, but we've got to downplay this. I think that's a, that's a fair reading um, of the evidence. Uh, and, you know, nonetheless, although it was insufficient, it wasn't inconsequential for her. Um, it was, as I said, the, the largest known sum of restitution. It, it struck many commentators at the time as a large amount, and it did make a difference for, for her and her family after the fact. Let's talk about that difference. I think that'll be a nice way to wrap up this whole story because her son Arthur has quite a story. He wouldn't have become who he became were it not for this sum of money. That's right. He was uh, born enslaved in Mississippi in 1856 as a result of her re-enslavement in the laws of Mississippi at the time. But after the victory, Wood and uh, her son Arthur moved to Chicago, where he later became one of the first African-American graduates of Northwestern University's law school. And I found records to show that in the 1880s, uh, Arthur Sims was his full name, was able to purchase a house in Chicago uh, outright, and that house became a fruitful asset for him. He was able to use it to uh, fund his legal education and and to provide for his family and his grandchildren. And uh, given the what we know about home ownership rates at the time and the difficulty of of buying a house for African Americans in particular in Chicago in that period. It seems extremely likely to me that Wood's award played a role in making that possible for Sims. Caleb McDaniel, he's author of Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America. Overlooking the Pacific in California lies a 1923 movie set, Entombed in a Sand Dune. Entombed is apt because the set in the sand is meant to be ancient Egyptian architecture. And if you know the name Cecil B. DeMille, you know what's up tomorrow on Constant Wonder. Our show is a production of BYU Radio.